לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Welcome to another edition of Parser Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamed in the basement studio of the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation. I'm Shamed. That's my house, really. <laughs> Joining me are good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler. Hello, Barry. Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky. I'm Chichasen. Hello. We are talking to you today on a week of graduations again. Mazel Tov, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky. Odelia's graduation. A word. Tomorrow, my daughter is graduating high school. Yesterday, this, we're, we're recording on Wednesday, the 26th. To, yesterday, she turned 18. Tomorrow, she's graduating high school. I've been a parent in the Heschel School for an exceedingly long time. And tomorrow, that era comes to an end. Baruch Shep Tarani, me tuition shall zoh. Mazal tov. Mazal tov, wonderful, wonderful. We had Mayan's graduation earlier the week. It was a lovely event. And lots and lots of good, we're, we're heading into the Simcha season, we couldn't do that too soon, mask mandates lifting, and who would be the saddest person, I guess, Barry Chesler? The Lone Ranger, who does not want to give up his mask under any conditions. Under any conditions, and that is a great way to start this Parsha talk. Wait, for our, for our friends in Canada, what, what are the hockey goalies? Like... Oh man, yeah. don't start. We Canada is so far behind in this, it's, it's just, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really... Shameful. In the meantime, this Parsha, though, is amazing. Lots and lots of material to go on. There's actually too much content in this Parsha to talk about. You know, we, we, it starts out with some information about, about the, the menorah, about the Levi'im, about uh, things that are connected to the travel. We want to just, let's go right into something that is important to us, and that is the second anniversary, the first anniversary of Pesach. The first anniversary of Pesach occurs in this Parsha, and they are supposed to do what? They are supposed to celebrate Pesach. It says, It's on the first day of the second year. And there are some interesting new twists to this legislation regarding Pesach, and they have to do with people who are not eligible for uh, eating, consuming the Passover, offering the Passover sacrifice. And they, they get an opportunity to do that. On A month later, Pesach Sheni. Barry, would you describe here something that you learn out of that issue? So Pesach Sheni is a, a fascinating observance, one that only makes it into the modern calendar because you don't have to say Tachnin on that day. But it is for people who were in a state of impurity and therefore cannot ans- cannot uh, make the Paschal sacrifice at the right time. And in the legislation that is developed in this chapter, it's also for people who are too far from Jerusalem. Historically speaking, Pesach had been a home ritual and it's going to be moved to the temple in Jerusalem. And once it's moved to Jerusalem, not everyone is going to be able to make it to the temple for the sacrifice. And this is the indispensable citizenship requirement of the Jewish people. 
if you make the Pesach sacrifice, you could call yourself an Israelite. If you don't make it, you are cut off from the people. And it speaks to us because it is something fundamental. Our national experience is rooted in the exodus from Egypt as part of our salvation history, and it's something that we maintain today. And what I like about Pesach Sheni is that it offers a slightly different observance for people who want to be part of the people but cannot join with them under ordinary circumstances on the 15th of Nisan. So they will do everything in one day. They'll make the sacrifice, eat the matzah with the maror, and that will be their observance. And I think what resonates for us today is that there's a recognition, recognition already in the Torah that there are many different ways to be Jewish, and all paths that are authentic have to be respected. So, so would you say that underlying this is really uh, the issue of Klai Yisrael? I mean, the, the Torah doesn't communicate it in that way, but but really what you're talking about is is peoplehood, our concept of peoplehood, and that this expression of peoplehood is demonstrated through this act. Do we have anything equivalent to it? Or, or I don't know if you have a different take on, on the Pesach Sheni, Jeremy, in terms of, you know, its meaning or, or you know, a, an application of some sort to, to, to anything. What would you teach on this? What would yeah, you... I, 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 I have basically the same, same view as Barry, that the, that the covenantal ritual, the, the thing, exactly as you said, is participating in, in Passover. Um, and uh, and be, because of it, it is the, you know, obviously at a certain point in history, we stopped smearing the blood on the doorpost, but Dam, Dam Pesach, the Dam Brit, the, the blood of the covenant of, you know, the, the bodies of Jews and, and the blood of the lamb, um, you know, are, are the co- things that seal the covenant and to be excluded from it would have undermined their, uh, their feeling of membership. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there's a Midrash that says that the people who come to Moses are Mishael and El Safan, the uh, nephews of Aaron who had picked up Nadav and Abihu's bodies oh, yeah. out of, the, out of the, the, that terrible tragedy. And, and so they essentially come to Moshe and said, you know, there, sometimes people have to do really difficult things in society. And there's a great Ibn Ezra on this comment, on this verse, which he comments, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the Israelite camp, okay? Somebody died every day, okay? Every year, somebody is prevented from Pesach because of just life going on around them and, and the death that, that kind of climbs in people's windows. And so we have to see to it that there is this way to bring you into the, the core covenantal moment. What it makes me think about in a you know modern society is what are, if there are any things that keep us, um, you know, that, that sort of affirm and seal and and are just integral to our membership. We know, like in a, in a in this great big American society, this is something that I think we've all spoken about in in recent years, um, that there is all too little language, ritual, cultural touchstones that everybody shares. And I would just offer the the you know thought that actually you gotta you gotta share those things. There's got to be something that you share that when you do it, then you say, okay, I know I'm part of the people. So Pesach Sheni comes along and says, um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna find a way, even when life threw you a curveball and and locked you out of this one major event, we're gonna find a way to reopen the door to get you back in. 
So I think I think in the modern Jewish context, there there you know Passover functions in some way like that, um, although not all people observe a Passover. Maybe the holidays, not all people observe a holiday. These are covenantal moments. They're moments of belonging, moments of expression of belonging. They're, they they may not touch everybody in the same way. They're, they and they may not convey you know the depth of narrative. And and maybe I think you're right. Maybe we are missing something uh, connected to that. I, I want to pick up on just one idea, which is that it's the first anniversary. It's it's I find that that idea to be very profound. That um, you know they they need to acknowledge movement in their lives. They need to acknowledge the moment. They need to acknowledge the calendar. And and we've we've said before the calendar is an identity forming device and it's an identity form and it, it functions on so many levels you know and we think about all the different kinds of anniversaries that people observe we're coming up on 20 years for 9/11 in America and and of course you know we've just had this this terrible you know war in Israel I mean that's going to in, in, in engrave a mark on the Israeli calendar certainly because of 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 a, a kind of eruption that I think was was um, really uh, you know a, 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 a moment. Now people will remark on these last days as uh, as a different moments. But let's move on from that to to um, a, a different set of uh, topics here. We got um, a description in this parsha of chatzotrot chatzotrot kesef. You have to make two horns, two trumpets of silver, mikshata seotam. And what was the purpose of the horns? They were uh, instruments to summon the people, and they also uh, did other things. Jeremy, you have a thought or two about the Chatzot Rochel Kesef? Anyone? Yeah. Miles, Miles Davis? Yeah, Miles <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, these these Chatzot the silver, the silver trumpets, and this is the word um, in modern Hebrew for uh, for that instrument. Um, we don't use the word shofar here, right? But they use they are they are uh, similar. They're used in similar ways. And, and as a matter of fact, we the the verse in our, our parsha uvayom simchatchem muadechem rashechodechem utkatem bechatzotra al olotechem balzivcheshal mechem. That's in the Rosh Hashanah liturgy in Shofarot, even though we don't use um, silver trumpets. Huh? We don't use silver trumpets. We, we use don't use silver trumpets. Actually, in the in the ancient temple, they had the silver trumpets as accompaniments to the shofar, and then the trumpets would fade out, and the shofar would continue. But um, it's a silly a, a similar thing. That is a, a time of celebration. You blow the trumpet, everyone hears. It's a time of assembly when there's a when there's some danger. You blow the shofar, and everybody you blow the chatzotra, and uh, and everybody comes together. Um, it's, it's it's how you signal without without uh, WhatsApp groups. It's how you signal that it's time to go to go moving. There's a fabulous, by the way, um, Hasidic drash. This is one of the classic Hasidic drashot on the word chatzotra. The the it's often given the name of uh, Dover Mizrich, the, the Baal Shem Tov's immediate successor, who said it's Shte Chatzitzurot, two half forms, that God and Israel are the matched set. Um, uh, it's it's and the, the Chatzitzurah that is God, the half form and the half form that is humanity. 
long for each other and they have to come together, which is just so beautiful. Very. So we often forget that the way the Torah describes the Israelite community is that it is enormous. It is a very large city, even by American standards. It has to be over 2 million people if we have 600,000 fighting men. And so there's a lack of personal touch. You need instruments in order to reach everyone. And here we have a little description. There are different notes. As Jeremy mentioned, there are different calls or different things that people have to be called to do. But what I'm struck by is that it mentions that sometimes you're going to blow a tekiah and other times a truah. That the sounds that we make, it's not just the blowing, but there's a language here that is embedded in the text and in our people's psyche, as it were. And there's a music that we have to be aware of. There's a music and it's a communication, it's a form, and it's a, a form of alarm. And, and I think it's, you know, sound, these kinds of sounds are very visceral. Look, you know, again, back to the last week, sirens in Israel, with the, the siren encodes a certain message, which is get out, get, get out, get, get under something quick, right? It, it, danger is here. And, mm -hmm. and we, you know, we don't grow up with that experience. We, I mean, it's very rare. I mean, look, you live in New York City, you, you, you hear sirens all the time, up and down the streets. I mean, that's very common. But, uh, you know, the air raid siren and the, the, the siren that, that says, you know, danger is imminent, that's not something that we, I, I mean, it would scare us, scare us deeply. I don't know. Oh, it's uh, Amos, is the shofar blown in the, in the city and the people not fear? Yeah. Okay, let's change topics now because the parsha changes. Uh, we're skipping over the 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 degel machaneb and yehuda, etc. All the different uh, the vexillology here, the flags. Um, Moshe has a father-in-law. His name is Chovav. Here he's named Chovav. In Yitro, he's named Yitro. And so Moshe says to Chovav, "We're going." Uh, how about you come with us? Lecha itanu. It'll be good. Ve'etavnu lach. And most, Chovav says, Lo elech, ki melarci ve'almonarci elech. You want to get into this moment here? This is a moment where Moses and his father-in-law are going to part. And, and um, you know, these are very, very precious moments, this kind of separation. And, and, and it's not an accident, maybe, that we have something occurring later on in the Parsha with uh, another part of Moses' family. The, the family story in Moses' life is, is encoded here. It, it, it gives us some information. There's, there's a push and a pull here. How, would you, how do you relate to this little vignette with Moses and his father-in-law and Chovav? Here he's known as Chovav. He wants to go back to his land and his birthplace. So there's a certain poignancy here because we have two aspects of our lives that summon up with in us strong connections. One is our land and the other is our family. And you can't always have both. And I think what speaks to me here is a recognition that other people have attachments to their own land. And we have to respect that. You know, Chovav needs to go back to his own land. He doesn't belong with his family, in his view. 
he needs to be on his land. And I think there's a kind of a powerful message there because sometimes you can't have both. You can't have both family and land and you have to choose. And it's an individual choice. And we hope that each of us chooses wisely, but we only get to make the choice once. And you know what's gonna happen is that Chobab is gonna leave and Moses is gonna go forward and that's the end of their relationship. Essentially. There's no mentorship anymore. Awesome. Jeremy, what do you... Yeah, well, um, I think this is quite interesting because, of course, as you said, he has a different name. He's called Yitro. He's called Yeter. He's called Chobab. He's called Reuel. Here he's Chobab ben Reuel. I mean, from one, one standpoint, we, we seem to have the Torah encoding some different traditions about this individual, uh, about his name. I'm, I'm struck by the fact, first of all, that Chobab and Reuel both have the same more or less semantic meaning. Reuel is God's friend, um, he's God's rea, and and Chovav is beloved. So there is something uh, um, like David and Yedidia, D David and Yedidia, which is Solomon's kind of birth name. Um, all those names also mean mean beloved or friend. There's something that 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 the father-in-law character is portrayed as really being close to God. Um, which is which is quite you know quite notable. Um, I, I also am a little bit you know intrigued by the fact in the way that, that you guys were referring to, Chovav makes a decision not to be part of Am Yisrael. Like Moshe, having led the people, have led, having led the mixed multitude out, led the era of Rav, and he is bringing you know, and sometimes they can be a problem because they're on Asaf Suf. Some of them are some of them are difficult maybe, but. Um, but he leads this people out and seems to say to the, this, this priest of Midian, um, hey, you know, like, you also be one of us. And the Midianite says, uh, you know, um, I love you. And, uh, and, and Yitro rejoiced back in Shemot when, when he heard all the wonderful things that happened to Moshe. I'm on your side. We have a good friendship. We are, we are even Mishpacha in some respect. But really, I have a different place, and I have a different calling, and uh, and I don't I don't really know how much this very short little passage in in Sefer Bamidbar means to convey by this. But it is true about Judaism in a way that is not true, I think, of, of certainly Catholicism or Islam. Y you know, you don't all have to be part of this, right? We actually respect it when some people say, um, you know, this religion is for you, and this other one is for me, and this this land is for you, and this other one is for me, and we don't all have to be the same. I think that is a actually really kind of precious feature of Judaism. Um, Catholicism and Islam have fought wars because everybody has to have the same religion. We have the right religion. We have the one religion. Um, of course, there is some of that in, in the Bible itself with the intolerance of paganism and idolatry and whatever. But, uh, but this passage seems to recognize the religion as we come to know it in Judaism, that this is this family's religion with this family's history and this family's path. And other people have ones that are uh, actually that even make them beloved, good friends to God, but they're not the same as us. He, he you know, if we put all of the different scenes that Yitro Chovav uh, plays in, he's really an extraordinary character. And and the fact that that he goes back, that he makes this decision, I think, it, it, you know, I just want to amplify what you say there. One one little asterisk I would put on it is that. It says, 
Uh, and those those words ring in our ears because we heard that with Avraham, lech lecha, lech lecha go from your land and your birthplace. And there's one extra word, with, or a set of words, your father's household. Yitro's not going back to his father's household because he is a clan leader. He he is, he, that means, I what I understand here is that he he recognizes his role within his uh, his nation or his clan or his society that he plays that role and that he to someone else is a bit of and therefore he has that responsibility and and i think i you know just want to amplify what you said jeremy you know we have enormous respect for him because he he puts a priority on things that we can identify with and barry said the same thing he identifies with with his own family that's his own place his own birthplace you know there's only you know there's only so much uh uh desert he can handle okay speaking of desert the, the Torah then moves into uh, the, the set of verses that we recognize very, very well from the service, like Ibn Soharon, Vayaron Moshe, Kuma Adonai, the song of the ark. You know, we, we, we pull out, we open the ark and we say this. Um, and we sing these verses when we take the Torah out and we put the Torah back. They have a certain kind of, I don't know, militaristic uh, tone to it. But... Uh, Liturgically speaking, um, when we open the ark, we are we are at least trying to get ourselves back in the desert. I like the I like this interpretation. I think I've used it before, which is you know we're very conscious of of superimposing onto the synagogue experience the reenactment of one element of our desert. The desert is where we form. So the message is, hey, come to shul. And you're going to get formed as a people. And those of us who are in New Jersey who have had the mask mandate lifted, you should come to shul. Come to shul now. It, we are saying it's safe. We want you back. We know that people have hesitation, but it's time. We want to see you. We love you. Come back. I don't know how's it in New York. You ready to see Bain Ben Soder? Well, I, I, I totally want to, or everyone who's listening to us who's in New York who uh, is vaccinated, we want to encourage you to come back. Not, not tomorrow, by the way, because we have, uh, or Saturday, because the Bar Mitzvah family, we're, we're holding up to about 75, or we can even go a little higher, but the Bar Mitzvah family uh, gets the lion's share of those. So not everybody can just come. Uh, we, we're asking people to register, but we, we do hope people will come Sunday morning. Everyone comes to the Minion. We, we do stay masked. Um, but we have plenty of room, and it, there's just no comparison. Hey, listen, Jeremy, send them over to Jersey, okay? <laughs> well, along the lines of what you're saying, Elliot, I think it's important to note here that there are two great symbols for the presence of God in the Bible. One is the Mishkan, the portable tabernacle, and the other is the Beit HaMikdash, the permanent temple in Jerusalem. Our synagogue is closer, I think, conceptually, to the temple than it is to the Mishkan, but these verses are from the Mishkan experience. It's where you could take the ark into battle. And it's not just the desert that we have to be aware of when we recite these verses in the synagogue. I think we want to recall this other symbol of the Mishkan that God is supposed to be in the center of the people. And when we say this at our ark, we are supposed to summon up an image of God being in our center. And it's sometimes difficult in the modern synagogue to locate a center. So it is an entree to a, a thought experiment when we are in the synagogue to try to visualize what we think the spiritual center of the synagogue is 
and how we can locate God there. It, it's true what you're saying about the um, the centrality, like physically speaking, the Mishkan is at the center, the Levites are around it, the various camps are around that, and as we talk about today with the Degel, in this part, this Degel moves and then that Degel moves. But I, I, I'm always, I, I find these these little verses that we use in the, in the Torah service uh, appealing because they they signify so much motion. Like you take the Torah out and you are reminded that the Torah is going on a journey with you. It's actually leading you on your journey. And, and hopefully it's making evil scatter. And then sometimes it, it's, it comes to rest again. And Shuba Adonai, return, O God, uh, to or along with Rivavot al-Fei Yisrael, the throngs of the throngs of the Israelites. So we, we have a lot of motion. We have a, we have a significant thing of rest as well. So there's a beautiful image, and here the poetry is really wonderful because it goes out with the thousands and it comes back with the ten thousands. So our reading and movement of the Torah is supposed to enlarge us, that's it. and that's our hope every Shabbat. I'm quoting you on that one in my parsha sheet this week. Okay, all right, we're moving into. Uh, can we get can we get back to the people and just how awful they can be sometimes? <laughs> I, maybe not. Wait, Let's love wait, them. Wait, Let's wait, let, you're not talking about your own service to. I'm Amir. not talking about Highland Park. I'm talking about the desert people. They just can't stop complaining. Right? So one of my favorite comments about the Jewish people I heard once from the, Phil Gordis, the brother of Robert Gordis, that the Jewish people are small but miserable. <laughs> and that's where this story comes from. But, okay, let, let's just, I want, to, we love the Jewish people, and, and I think we, we also love the fact that they complain, okay? And, and they complain about food, you know, for a change. Um, but let's, I, let's go into Moshe's reaction, okay? First, the, just prior to that, verse 10, chapter 11, Moses hears the people crying, Everyone's at their their tent opening, right? And and God is ready to let it let it rip. Why have you been? Why have you treated me so harshly? So who's who's he going to complain to? And and what is the what's the core of his complaint? Who's he complaining to? Do we have? A sense of pathos for Moshe, and and what's God's reaction? Barry, take it away, and Jeremy, I want you. You know, you'll you'll collaborate here. So, thinking about the story, you know, Moses is in a very difficult situation as the leader of the Israelites. Um, it's not a job he wanted, not one that he aspired to, one that was thrown into his lap, um, and he often finds himself in, in great. Uh, difficulty with sorrow, troubles. And the only person, as a word, that he can vent to is God. And God doesn't really want to hear it. <laughs> you know, and that only increases the angst for Moses because he's left with no one, divine or human, that he could pour out his, I think here, his troubled soul to and get some kind of relief. You know, God is supposed to be compassionate, but he doesn't always seem to show that compassion to Moses. Jeremy? Uh, I, I'm not sure that I totally agree with that. Um, I mean, listen, obviously, 
we don't get a ton of stage directions here. So I think that that, that, that um, interpretation is, is totally plausible if we carry through. But I, I think I'd give a slightly different one. Um, I, first of all, I find a little humor at the beginning of the passage, as you were reading. The people are, are whining and moaning about the food. And God was enraged. And it kind of stunk in Moses' opinion, too. <laughs> like God was enraged. And Moses weren't too happy, neither. Uh, <laughs> I find that really kind of funny. But Moses' complaint, I mean, listen, Bamidbar is a book that, that really has a, you know, an amazing unity of theme. The desert is really hard. The desert is, a, is an ordeal. And the people, you know, carried through the desert, are they're suffering. So they're, they're, they're complaining about the food. Um, uh, and... Um, Moses' complaint to God is uniquely rich um, because he uses a, a, a kind of feminine imagery about himself. Ha'anochi hariti et kol ha'am Did I, you know, you, you, switching, he's obviously a masculine speaker, but he is, was I pregnant with this people? Ima'anochi yiladetihu ki tomar elai sa'ehu bechekecha um, can you carry these people in my bosom, in your bosom, as uh, as the nurse with a masculine word, an unusual masculine word, carries the nursling? Moses is, you know, there's, there was a book written by a political scientist called Aaron Moldowski called Moses, the Nursing Father, um, about the political dimensions of, of this of this male figure as female figure. I mean, it was about Moses as political leader, but using this image um, uh, 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 about this kind of feminine or nursing quality to Moses's mothering leadership that, that is just very rich on a literary level and on a, um, on a further literary level, the uh, the manna, this kind of, is described both midrashically as mother's milk, but even in the passage just before it, it's, it said that the, um, that, the, uh, that the taste of the manna was lishad hashemen, uh, like we usually translate it as rich cream or something like that, but shad is actually breast. So, so God is mother feeding, God is, is mother nursing the people. Moses comes along and says, I, I can't really be this this mother nurse anymore, and each of them have been have been like you know they've been going through the ringer with these people that they just cannot satisfy, and because the desert's really hard and the desert's really. So what I'd like to add to to your comment, Jeremy, is that Moses is portrayed as a nursing mother, and God is accused of being the absent father. Yeah, that's Moses great. Moses cannot bear this alone is a rebuke of God, because God is supposed to help him bear it. So what do you make then of Moses's punchline, Hargeni Naharog, kill me now, kill me. Is that, is he saying it to just get, you know, a reaction? Is he mean it? You know, is he at this wit's end here? I mean, that would be a wit's end kind of statement. I mean, we, we do have these things like Jonah. You remember Jonah when God, when God doesn't, you know, Tov Moti Mechayai, Jonah says, I'd rather die than have to live with this. Or, or Rachel, when Rachel is struggling with infertility, she says, you know, uh, just, I, I don't want to live. I, I, I don't want to live if I can't have a baby. Um, I can't remember if other prophets, perhaps Jeremiah, who was so enraged in God, maybe, maybe this is a trope that is not just in these three cases, but Moshe, 
definitely seems to be saying. Tell me now. Yeah, but you know, well, also, I think also, it's also, before he says, erase me from your book if you're not going to make this come out right. It's a cry for attention that demands the response. Okay. Right? God could be looking askance or looking away from Moses, but as soon as Moses says, kill me now, God has to respond. Okay, so let's... Because the implication is, is if God won't kill him, then Moses might kill himself. Interesting, and, and we we're, we're not going to go there, okay? It's too, too, too tragic, all right? But so God does react. Uh, I, I want to say, okay, so here we are, three people, you know, uh, it, you know can we uh, uh, measure, adjudicate, uh, rate uh, God's reaction here on a scale of one to five? You know, the, you know if it was... God, how, how does God do in the therapy department here? <laughs> I'm, I'm going. I'm going positive. Well, first of all, so the, here the enraged father. These people want meat. I'll give them meat. I'll give them so much meat that it's going to come out of their nose. That's that's real negative. Sharing Moses' prophetic burden with seventy or seventy-two. Uh, so seventy, but then there's Eldad and Medad, which. It works out numerically that if you have six from, from all the tribes, then you get 72. Um, uh, sharing Moshe's prophecy, the burden of being the one person who talks to God and God uh, softens that and shares the shares the experience throughout society, that's pretty good to me. Good. Okay. He doesn't really address Moshe emotionally, but he does give Moshe a strategy for dealing with his difficulty. And he well, says, he, I... I I think he does address Moses emotionally because he punishes those who are really responsible here. And it's the complaining people. Okay. Right. They're the ones who get the zets. They're going to get everything they want so much so that they won't be able to bear it themselves. Right. It's the, the month full of food, uh, of meat that they won't be able to stomach. Although I guess the image is a little bit different, but it's the same idea. And, to Moses himself, he offers support. These other prophets. That maybe that's that that is some really you know intelligent and very capable you know therapy, which is. Here I say it's almost divine. It's almost divine. Say so here, I'm going to give you the skills to deal with your problem. You know, I'm going to help you create um, a a structure around you. Uh, gather seventy people who can share the burden of the people. Uh, and uh, and have the gift of prophecy, have some administrative, uh, you know, responsibility, um, and and take the weight off of you. I, I think it's it's it's. Uh, I would knock it even one more notch up in its in its overall wisdom, which is that um, Moshe, when when Joshua sees that other people um, are are experiencing this ecstatic prophecy. You know, Nikla'em, throw him in jail. This is terrible. You've got to be the lone leader. And Moshe uh, says brilliantly, Would that all of God's people were prophets? The point of this thing is to spread the experience of the divine through the people so that everybody has some of it. Um, the point is not my hierarchical leadership. So not only does God, I think, spread that that prophetic gift through the people, um, Moshe is also expressing that the whole point 
of communal religious experience has been to like create that um, um, connection with the divine, not just not just with one one big boss, but but broadly. So Joshua doesn't seem to understand the the burden of leadership. So he's jealous for Moses's behalf, and Moses recognizes that the purpose of his leadership is, in a certain sense, to make everyone like him. All right, we got we're we're running out of time. In fact, we're over time, but we got to talk about the last scene, which is. Moses and Miriam and Aaron speaking behind Moshe's back about Aisha Kushit, uh, his wife, and and what happens to Miriam afterwards, or you know, th- there's there's a really very very you know important exchange between the two. Of what happens to Miriam? Barry, want to just tell us this? You know. So, Miriam and Aaron say something about Moses's wife, and then they complain that they're prophets too, just like Moses, and God gets angry. Seems to be the theme this week. God is angry and he summons them and he says, you know, where do you come off? I appear to you in dreams and riddles. And to Moses, who is very humble, I speak. Mouth to mouth, pal, pal. Mouth to mouth. Um, a kind of resuscitation. And what happens then is that Miriam is punished. She is stricken with leprosy and Aaron he doesn't complain, but he takes note of this to Moses and says, you must do something. And Moses offers the shortest prayer on record, five one-syllable word, words, El Allah. and God says he will heal her, for, but she must be put out of the camp for a week because if a father is upset with his child and banishes her, that's how long she is uh, banished for. And it seems that this is a, a kind of counterpoint to the story about the prophets, because I, in the story about the prophets in chapter 11, Joshua is jealous on Moses's behalf. And here, Miriam and Aaron, who may have been two of the 70, are, are jealous of Moses. And they don't understand that Moses is in the category of his own. Jeremy, your take on this story is... Well, this story is very, uh, we were talking in another vein before we started recording how uh, it's very easy and seductive to tell, you know, one complicated story through the prism of another complicated story that's weighing heavily on your mind. uh, That might be true about Israel and, and politics and America. And it's interesting to me that this story, because it says that they complain about the woman, the, the Ethiopian woman, the Isha Kushita Sherlakach, um, the the almost inevitable way that an American in the late 20th or early 21st century reads this story is with a racial dimension. Um, you know, Moses married a black woman, and 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 Miriam's punishment is that she, she's mitzorat kashalek. Her her Miriam's Miriam's punishment is that her skin turns you know ghostly white. So it's it's hard not to feel like there's a uh, a story about in group out group and and who, what is a favored ethnicity and what is the you know quote unquote um, uh, uh, strange looking skin of Moses's wife. Um, I must say I I do think that is a an almost irresistible modern reading and it doesn't really seem to me the right reading of an ancient text. I you know the the, the sort of prevailing. Um, view in the rabbis is that the the complaint about Moshe 
is that he's um, abandoned his wife because he's such a prophet. He's such a prophet that he's got to be with God all the time, and so he's celibate. And and Mo, Miriam and Aaron um, complain al odot hakushit ashelakaf, which which I think the tight way to translate that would be they complain on behalf of the Ethiopian woman that Moses had married. This poor woman, her husband is this is what Barry said before. God's the God is the absent father. Well, maybe Moshe is the absent father. He's with God all the time. He's never with his wife. And and they're feeling bad for for her, not against her. But admittedly, I think that that's a that's what I think the pshat is. But admittedly, I have in twenty plus years in the synagogue rabbinate, I think that almost everybody thinks that this story is about racism. So so interesting, you know, you, the pshat is is what you said it is. The drash is that she's beautiful. You know, I have the Rashi right in front of me. It says al udah. Uh, Ha'isha hakushit. I'm sorry. It says the gematria yifat mareh. In gematria, they do the equation of the words and the values of the letters. It means she's beautiful. What would they be complaining about? In terms Wait, of- are you saying that he married Beyonce? Yeah, Moses married Beyonce. So, so, so here it is. She, he's married to this this beautiful Ethiopian woman, and he's he, he doesn't pay attention to her at all, and and. You know, if, if 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 you were Moses's brother or sister, you'd say, "Hey, what's the matter with you? Come on, you know, you can't you can't talk to God all day. Go spend some time." No, I don't know. It's a uh, this this uh, leaves us with with so many different questions, but it's such a great uh, great parsha filled you know, with. It is interesting to me, by the way. After after parsha parsha b'midbar v'naso that are just so boring. <laughs> and Parshat Bet Alotcha has so many great stories. Well, we have to bring the to a conclusion now. We thank you for watching and listening, and uh, we're going to sit with these stories for, for a while. I hope everyone has a beautiful Shabbat. May be a restful, joyful, quiet Shabbat for our brothers and sisters and friends in Israel. And we'll see you next week on Parshat Talk. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.